Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is lead analyst Logan Motoshami to talk about inflation numbers, mortgage rates, and new home sales. First, here's a word from our sponsor. This is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at Housing Wire, with Ryan Marshall, CEO and founder of Equity Protect, to talk about a very specific and growing kind of fraud risk. Ryan, what is deed fraud? In today's landscape, scammers follow a series of steps, often by obtaining a list of properties without mortgages, and are frequently non-owner occupied from industry providers like Title Toolbox or Title 365. They then delve a little deeper, identifying properties with recently recorded grantor-grantee deeds where the notary stamp is still valid. They'll take the deed, they'll modify the deed in a electronic uh, format, something like Adobe Pro. They'll change the ownership details to their own. They'll add a fictitious escrow number. They'll modify the recording request to appear legitimate. And then they'll make slight alterations to the return address, making sure that that title company or the proposed uh, title company never sees a copy of it. They then carefully refine the copy to make sure that it resembles an original document. And then they simply submit it to an online service provider or they physically walk it into a county recorder's office. The next step is the scammer will visit a local bank with uh, lax security measures in place. They assume a false identity. They apply for a loan, patiently wait a three-day rescission period, deposit the money into an account that's often held for five to seven days. They'll withdraw it, and then they vanish without a trace. Ryan, thanks for letting us know about that. Listeners, you can find out more information about deed fraud and how to prevent it at equityprotect.com. Logan, welcome back to the podcast. It is good to be here, Sarah. It is good to have you here since we had inflationary data come out that we need some explanation on. Yes, you know, it's it's been very confusing for so many people this year because uh, the, the Fed's main inflationary target is getting core PCE, personal consumption expenditures, down to 2%. And it's made some good progress on that side. The 12-month core PC is down to 3.7%. The um, If you annualize it for three or six months, it's below 3%. It's got a two-handle. The uh, PCE for the GDP data that just came out the uh, last week, it was running at 2.4%. So there's progress being made, but the 10-year yield and mortgage rates have done the opposite. And you know, for me this year, it's always been the labor market, the labor market, the labor market. So one of the things I want to remind people is that when inflation was taking off at first, the bond market didn't go with it. Uh, we were seeing the growth rate of inflation move higher, faster than we would normally see in the previous decade. And the 10-year yield didn't break that 1.94% level for those who, who who might not know. That's been a big part of my economic work, actually going back to 2019 and how hard it's been for us to break above that. So when the Fed kind of just did their own pivot and uh, said, you know, our, our job is to attack inflation and went on a, you know, bonanza run of raising short-term interest rates, you know, after all these rate hikes, 
And then the growth rate of inflation falling, you know, people just assume mortgage rates would go down with it. Um, and you see these historical charts being used. But but for me, one of the things, the first thing I would tell everybody is that global bond yields are up, right? So I think a lot of people are are going back to the previous decade where global uh, bond yields were lower. We had negative yields. Uh, the growth rate of inflation could barely keep you know, at, at 2% for, you know, well over 20 years, it's not that type of, uh, economy anymore. So it's confusing because we've made good progress, but the 10 year yield has reversed course and mortgage rates got to 8%. And, uh, uh, I understand, you know, that was not what a lot of people just assumed. And especially this last move higher where the fed was very hawkish, even after all the rate hikes, even after all the progress is made, you know, they said, all right, we're not done yet. And if you look at it as attacking the labor market, and then we see all the data, right? They say they want more labor supply and they want the economy to grow below trend. What happened this last quarter? The economy grew near 5% and, you know, jobless claims, headline jobless claims went back under 200,000. Job openings have come down a lot from the recent peak, but it's still elevated. And if you just look at labor over inflation, then this last quarter can, you know, you could see the one of the reasons why the 10-year yield has has broken higher and one of the reasons why the Fed kind of didn't want to uh, be more dovish in the last uh, meeting. So do you think, you know, bond traders can do what, what they want to do, right? We've talked before about how they can um, they can outrun the Fed, they can pivot ahead of the Fed or whatever. But in this case, it feels like, you know, what's it going to take for them to to do? You would say that that inflation, yeah, that's not going to make the the Fed do something. But why is that not making a, a difference for bond traders? Now, this is this is a really, really fascinating and lovely topic that I love. So last year around this time, you know, it was October 27th, it talked about, you know, wrote that article, the case for lower mortgage rates, just because on that day, the Fed's main recessionary indicator went off. Bond traders knew this. Um, after that point, we got to four and a quarter on the 10-year yield. We had massive global stress back then. So the bond traders are like, okay, the Fed's main recessionary indicator is off. And look what's happening. London's going to lose its pension funds. Japan's in intervention mode. And of course, the IMF <clears throat> needed Ethan Hunt to come take the Fed out for uh, hiking rates too much. That was a different backdrop. So what occurred is during that time frame, the 10-year yield started to go lower and lower and lower and lower. And, you know, we got to a point, but we got to the point to where I thought, boy, that's that, I think that's it, right? That was the whole point of the Gandalf line. You know, it's going to be really hard for us to get below 3.37 because the labor market isn't breaking. So I would say the bond traders thought, and could have been correct, that the banking crisis was going to put the U.S. into a recession or the banking crisis was going to make the Fed change. And guess what? The banking crisis didn't put us in a recession and the Fed didn't change. They start, they kept hiking, even with the banking crisis, even telling us that, well, you know, this banking crisis might be like another rate hike. No, it wasn't, right? They kept on going through because what occurred was the labor market wasn't breaking. Now, jobless claims were rising. We had a little uptrend in claims but it reversed. It completely reversed. So, uh, you know, it, it's it, it's it's really 
scratching some people's heads. But if you look at it in that, and this is one of the reasons why, you know, toward Christmas, you know, we did that podcast, who spiked the Fed's eggnog? Because, you know, kind of in November, I, you know, there was a, there was a kind of a case where the Fed was saying, yeah, we're going to do what we can to make sure we get a soft landing. We're going to keep the Fed funds rate around uh, where the core PCE is. Well, guess what? If that was the case, the Fed would be cutting one and a half percent today. So I, I was like a little bit shocked. I was like, wow, why? That's they're not going for the real yields here. And then that was just a lie. You know, we, we, just, we, we even did that podcast. The Fed lied to everybody. They weren't, they had no intentions of running the Fed funds rate where core PC is. So attack the labor market, attack the labor supply. You know, growth has to go down, and which is again somewhat embarrassing for the Fed. Is that the growth rate of inflation fell noticeably, and we're growing above trend, and jobless claims are still low. So there's some confusion here, and I just think this is a last. The last decade was so easy, you know. There's nothing going on, but here with the velocity of data, I think uh, uh, even today when people see the ten-year yield at four point eight six percent, and they see the core PCE at you know three point seven, they're like, what's going on here? And I think. Just think labor market and economy first over inflation for right now. Okay, so I, I'm i going to give you a superpower just for the length of this podcast, Logan. What if you right now could direct what what you say right now the Fed would do? What if Or if you were at the Fed, what would you do in this situation? I'm cutting one and a half percent. Cutting I'm one cutting and a half the percent. Fed funds rate around one and a half percent. I'm keeping it right where core inflation is. And not only that, I'm saying, okay. We've got things tight. We're stopping quantitative tightening. We want to make sure that we get a soft landing. So that's the thing. Now, here's here's a here's a structural dynamics between us young people and the Fed. <laughs> can, can you say that with me on the podcast? I'm not sure. I I'm a part. You're of part of the Fed, you. Sarah. Sarah, you're part of the Fed. Okay. <laughs> okay. I think you're older than Neil Kashkari, so you're you're part of the Fed now. Um, the 1970s, they always talk about the 1970s, 1970s, 1970s. So in the 1970s, core PCE went up to double digits. And then we had the 1974 recession, which destroyed multifamily construction, by the way. So we might be seeing that over the next 12 to 18 months. But what happened was that the growth rate of inflation came lower, but the growth rate just slowed to the point where it's actually higher than where we are today. So even when the growth rate inflation slowed back in the 70s, it was it's not anywhere close to where we are today. And this is the problem with using 1970s inflationary models. Then it took off again. Well, guess what? We had a oil shortage around the world, right? The uh, oil was used as a weapon. Adjusting to inflation, roughly oil prices would have to be at $450 today to match that back then. Not happening, right? So... Um, different dynamics. I, I, I was so, I was so pleased when I saw the fed say, we want to match the fed funds rate with core inflation, core PC, because they were tracking forward things getting, uh, uh, slower. The irony is that the fed actually forecasted a recession this year. That hasn't happened. (laughs) So even with growth above trend, even with the labor market still good, the core CPI or core PC data is at 3.7%. I believe in that dual mandate. I believe they did 
They should have just taken the victory, raise short-term rates, get to the point, right? And then there it goes. We'll just endure. But they wanted to keep real yields, even at four to four to quarter. Okay, fine. That was like the peak of the 10-year yield forecast. I could even uh, be accepted with that. But being hawkish at this stage, okay, there's where you're drawing the line. You be, and I mean, the Fed was talking about before the Fed meeting, you know, we might cut rates next year, even if the labor market isn't broken, because the real yields are very restrictive now. Okay, that was at below four and a quarter percent. Now it's here. So you're playing with fire that you don't need to. Okay. You don't need to do this. And we don't want to be old and slow. We want to be forward. I mean, that's the whole housing wire tracker. That's why we we want people to 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 get ahead of the curve and not be behind. But I, I still fundamentally believe the same thing when I went on CNBC very early this year. The Fed is not satisfied until the labor market breaks. Okay, they might not be able to say that publicly. I mean, they say it in subconscious terms, labor market's too strong, labor market's too strong. God, these service workers are getting too much money. They how are these bosses? No, no, you know, they say it in that tone, but that just really means they need to attack the labor market more. So that's the only explanation I could give for being hawkish after all these rate hikes, after the 10-year yield was at four and a quarter, and still just pressing to the metal. Um and here, and that's 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 how I would approach it because that keeps the dual mandate. Now, I this doesn't mean I'm cutting rates anytime soon. I'm just keeping it where the growth rate of core PCE is. The Fed is talking about cutting, but I, we don't need to we don't need to play with fire. We don't need to play with fire in a sense. And you know, a lot of the things now that people are starting to be aware of is that interest income for institutions and companies, you know, uh, uh, is is running up. Right, uh, there are people that are actually getting some more income than before. It's not like it's completely a negative tail or an interest rates going up. Somebody out there is collecting more interest, so there are some benefits with a, a higher interest rate economy for certain groups of people. So, um, it's it's just it's a global pandemic, and that's a thing. It's our first global pandemic in recent modern day history, and we have to deal with deal with it. But uh, again, for me, it's I, I'm always worried about the dollar getting too strong. And that's kind of you know I'm, I was going to be the I was going to be the dollar for Halloween, Sarah. Uh, but King uh, dollar, I mean, yeah, I was going to be the dollar because if the dollar got to 115, boy, that's just going to be a wrecking ball around the world. But it didn't. It's it's rising, but it hasn't gotten to that level. So that's how I would have approached it, and then keeping everything in check. But I'm not the Fed. The Fed shouldn't be one person anyway. And this is the world we're dealing with. This is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at Housing Wire, with Melinda Wilner, Chief Operating Officer at UWM. Melinda, what should independent mortgage brokers be doing right now to prepare for when rates do eventually come down? It's a great time to think about such an exciting time ahead. A couple of things. One, focusing on scalability of their business, how to do loans more quickly and with even greater service. It's a great time right now to really focus on the experience with the borrower too and the referral partners, the realtors, the people that they work with today to get business, really uh, strengthen those relationships, but really a giant focus on how to give the borrower the best experience so that when rates fall, it's a no-brainer. Let's do this again. Let's get our rate lowered. 
And then thirdly, really just focusing on the business and building the business. So whether it's marketing strategies, how am I going to do things differently uh, when it's a refinance period? Um, how am I going to um, train better and quicker next time if they intend on growing and adding to their team? What are the things that I can do to make training more quickly and, and easy in the future? So it's a really great time to think about. It's such an exciting time, but really important to think about and take the time to think about what's ahead. All great points. And listeners, you can find out more at uwm.com. So in your opinion, the um, the likelihood that they would do that is low right now. And then that means that that's what the bond traders are, are looking at. The, the bond traders are like, until the Fed actually pivots, they're not going to do it ahead of them. Here's, here's another thing. This might be a little bit too geeky for some people, but on a technical basis, I understand why the bond market traders went short. I mean, we always talk about these key levels, you know, on Instagram, we always I, like I spend all night and day talking about, you know, economic data and charts on the 10 year yield. If I was a bond trader and the Fed went hawkish when the 10 year yields were right at 4.34%, I'm shorting bonds too. That's your, do you break that technical level? You know, you have quantitative tightening, you have more supply coming on the market. Japan is, you know, losing its, its, it's yield curve practice. I mean, there's a lot of things in there that's in your favor. That's playing with fire. So I I just don't think the Fed looks at it that way, right? What technical bond traders are doing. So I I, I understand the enthusiasm some bond traders had with shorting uh, yields. And then the other bond traders are morbidly depressed now because, you know, they, they've expected um, the 10-year yield to be so much lower. And, we, you know, we had that presentation earlier this year where, a bond trader is saying, you're wrong, Logan, the leading economic indicators are falling. And that's always followed with a 10-year yield. And I go, it's not going to happen this time. That Gandalf line will hold. And if the labor market still stays firm, you, you could go up. So uh, different different dynamics here. And I just think that the Fed should, the next Fed meeting, there should be some disagreements on the dots or looking at forwards. Where the where the ten year yield is now, where the growth rate of inflation now, and let's all remember that you know the shelter inflation it, it's not as big on the personal consumption expenditures, but it is lagging as well. So whatever we see on the core side is actually lower too today. Um, so that's that's another reality we're dealing with. We also saw rent inflation come down, did we not? Uh, was that this week? Last week? They all kind of run together. The shelter shelter inflation on CPI came down, but the rent aspect, the primary resident rent, actually ticked up a little bit stronger, which isn't the case, which is the irony of everything. We we are seeing so much uh, uh, disinflation on rents out there. Plus, you know, people are offering one to two, three months for free. I mean, it's 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 a completely different marketplace, and that's you know, the Fed has acknowledged that, but uh, again, labor. Attack, attack, labor, attack, attack, labor. And uh, uh, that whole hawkish tone at this stage really, really, sh- it really should have opened everyone's eyes to what the Fed really wants to do. And uh, we're dealing with it right now. So the 10 year yield still is, is, is high enough to where real yields are very um, restrictive on Fed policy terms. Okay, so we are recording this on Friday. And as always, that means that you're going to get, you're going to have a fun Friday night with all the Altos research data on housing. You get to look at all of it, uh, you know, and come up with things. What do you expect inventory to be? Well, the growth rate has been picking up lately uh, as higher rates creates weakness in demand takes longer. So that's how it works. The mortgage rate lockdown is not happening. 
Um, in this case, though, uh, I've been wrong 100% of the time this year because I have my own targets with the slope of the curve of using Altos research. And I thought easily, if rates are above 7%, we would have weeks between 11 to 17,000 active inventory, which it, it wasn't even anywhere close to the peaks we had last year, but the slope of the curve is different. And this is why when I always talk about the slope of the curve, that's a really big deal when you're talking about inventory channels. And hopefully that somewhat explains. And I, I think one, one, one thing we all have to remember is that the bottom of the inventory seasonal happened on April 14th. That's the longest time ever in history that we had a seasonal bottom. So sometimes things, you know, going off a little bit longer toward the ends, a little bit perspective on that, especially as rates rise, uh, because those homes are actually in the system. And if it takes longer, it doesn't necessarily mean like inventory is booming higher. Uh, the new listings data, the new listings are getting, you know, try to explain this. When I talk about the new listings data, those are the homes that go onto the market that are unsold. Right. So the previous week, there was 57,000. There was more new listings than that, but they go on contract. Right. These are the, this is just the raw number of unsold homes. So you can't have an escalation in, in inventory uh, if you're getting new listings data still trending at the lowest levels ever. So there's going to be a time in the future this changes. Right. And this is why jobless claims to me when jobless claims rise, especially above 323,000, there's where we shift the entire discussion of housing to trying to think where, how much are we going to see new listings data grow because people have to sell their homes because they don't have jobs. You know, that's, that's the mindset at that point. We're not there yet. Of course, I think everyone has to realize that everyone messed up on the economy. Uh, Even, even people like ourselves that were saying, okay, there's no recessionary, there's no recession. I don't think anybody had 5% GDP growth and headline jobless claims under 200,000. Right. That wasn't not in anybody's bingo card. And we kind of brought this up maybe nine, 10 months ago, where what's the one trade that nobody is ready for? What if the economy doesn't go into recession and, and, and gets firmer? And this is the a- a- aspect of it. We're dealing with that today. But again, we, we track the tracker just to get an idea of active inventory growth, new listings data. And I'm, I'm, I'm telling you right now, what I'm seeing out there on social media is people are overplaying the new listings data and the active inventory growth. It is not, it is a slow year. This is one of the reasons why inventory is still negative year. I mean, we're sitting here talking about people are trying to make a big deal about active inventory growing and we're still negative year over year with home sales, existing home sales went under 4 million. I mean, perspective here, but again, I think everybody wants to be the person that tells you, oh my God, you know, here it is, here it comes. Nobody wants to do the internal data work week to week because in a sense it's boring and there's just a very slow slope curve. Uh, uh, and we do have a shot this year to have some positive year-over-year data because the inventory growth hasn't had its seasonal decline yet. And we'll see that that's the next thing we want to see. When does the seasonal decline happen? Last year, it was October 28th. Uh, this could, in a sense, be even a little bit longer than that. And that's what I'm looking for on the weekend. And we are right there. We're, we're recording this on October 27th. We are we are right there. So last year we had, you know, rates dipped that little bit. We had a little, uh, we had that nice spike in purchase apps, um, which then came in sales in the spring. Do you see anything like that happening? Do you, everything that we've talked about? It's a, it's a different marketplace today than it was last year, because last year there was all this world drama in the sense that 
the dollar was getting strong and it was creating havoc. We don't really have that today. Uh, we we have strong economic growth, low jobless claims data, and we do have some uh, conflicts in the Middle East, but uh, the dollar isn't getting super strong and people aren't rushing money into the bond market. You know, So to, to me, the market believes there's no real escalation risk yet. Because usually what happens in the middle, if there's something happening around the world, people run to our dollar and run to the bond market. That's the safest place to go hide. Uh, not the, it's, So it, that hasn't happened really at all. Next topic, new home sales data. Yes. You know, it's it's interesting. Um, <clears throat> there's so much confusion around the new home sales market, but we want to try to keep it simple because what occurred is that the builder sentiment has been falling for the last few months, but new home sales is slowly growing. That uptrend in sales, so I like to draw those charts with the black lines, is still intact. So I think it was uh, not last, not the last report, but the other report before that, uh, when I went on CNBC and Carl Quintanilla, the anchor, asked, "Is like so? Do they do the builders? Can they still do this in terms of uh, uh, paying down rates? Some builders can, but not all of them. So when we think about the HMI survey, it's very efficient. There are builders out there that don't build a lot of homes that don't have the ability to." put 20, 30, $40,000 into lowering rates down. So of course they would be, they're, they're like the existing home sale market people. They're like, ah, rates are too high, you know? Um, so let's, let's remember that the publicly traded builders have still a lot of profit margin. It's definitely costing them more to pay down rates, but the new home sales completed units, Sarah Wheeler, you want that number? We have 75,000 new homes available for sale in a country of 335 million and 157 million working. So as those homes start to get ready, what do the builders do? You know, I had a, uh, a local uh, local builder home. Is, it's going to be ready in three weeks. And this is how they present it. Everyone in three weeks, this brand new house with all the bells and whistles is going to get ready. And by the way, it's 8% mortgage rates out there. Come on in. We can forgive you sub 6% mortgage rates all the time. Remember, the builders are marketing. They're almost taunting the existing home buyers. Hey, come on in. Come on in. You don't need to have an old home that's 40 years old and you know has carpets You know, back in the 1970s when the Fed was dealing with inflation. You can get a brand new house and we'll give you a lower rate. So those builders provide a lot more sales and production. So uh, the confu- I, I've been trying to tell people, if you just look at it in that, that story is still going. Now, can they do this forever? No. Is the new home sale data going to be crazy month to month? Yes. But that slow uptrend, and when I mean slow, and this is such a key thing with the new home sales market, back in 2005, new home sales was at 1.4 million. Housing starts, permits, production, completions, completions were all moving together. And then the massive credit boom, credit bust. The reason I keep on telling people this over and over again for 10 years, we have never had a credit boom bust, right? Because we never had a credit boom in the first place. So we're not working from very elevated levels. It doesn't take much to move the needle. We saw that in the existing home sales market last year. Rates went from 7.37 down to 6%. Home sales were like, oh God, things are so bad. We're going to get to 4 million. The reason I talk about that 4 million is now everyone gets to see this. It's really hard to get below under 4 million. 
So for the builders, they do what they need to do to move product because they're just looking at this as a commodity. They don't have to sell a house, buy another home or anything like that. Just get it here and they move stuff. Uh, so it's just a very slow uptrend. Not much is happening. But if you look at the housing completion data, oh my God, it's there's not there's not much. It's like we're, we're not even at 2002 levels. So uh, we're just dealing with a different dynamic in the new home sales sector. And these people are here to make money, Wheeler. This is not the March of Dimes. Oh, I know. They're here to make money. They're not, you know, this is not a charity case. So uh, that's the big builders do have an advantage over the smaller ones. So hopefully that explains that uh, this is why we always try to stress the profit margins are good for them, at least the bigger home builders. And as I call them, they are very efficient sellers when they need to be. They are. I've been checking out home builders all over uh, uh, the DFW Metroplex. And I can tell you the only, uh, they definitely have that advantage. First of all, you know, I've uh, uh, different places, oh, $40,000 off, right? Um, Another one, in the next 18 months, we'll we'll pay for you to refinance, um, you know, into a lower rate. Uh, but I, th- but I think one of the things that, that I see, especially because I bought in this area, say six years ago, the lots have been divided and they are smaller. So what you're getting, and not only is the price risen, right? From six years ago, as you would expect, uh, and especially in the last two years, but the lots are smaller and the, the finished product for what you're buying. So different, right? Just like, you know, around here. Around here, brick is very popular. We have a actually a, a, a major brick manufacturer in the in this area, and you can almost chart how the brick shows up on the houses over the last three years. And you know, you're paying X amount, but you are not getting the same product in some cases. And also, I think one thing people have to realize is that if the builders are sm- selling more smaller homes into the mix, the median sales price can go down just based on that. So I think there's there's some confusion. People say, well, new home prices, the median sales price is down 10, 12%. Why aren't home prices nationally crashing? That's a very small marketplace. And if you are providing smaller homes, which they are starting to do, you know, your your median sales price changes. This this actually happened in 2017, 18. Uh, uh, some of the smaller homes were getting bought more often. And it looks like prices are crashing, even though they never were. Uh, back there, I encourage everyone go look at a six month. You won't do this, of course. You go look at a six month median sales price of new homes back then, and it looked like home set prices were crashing. They never were. So always remember that the median sales price for the builders you have to be a little bit mindful of that. If they're just selling smaller homes, that's going to affect the price going lower. If they were uh, if the shift was from a higher uh, a, or a bigger home sales price, and I think that might clear up some of the confusion there. That's such a good point. And there are all these variables that obviously it, it depends on where you are. It depends on the builder, but until you look into them, that, that headline, those, some of those headline numbers don't mean what you might think they mean. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there's where the, you know, existing home sales prices are, you know, got to all time highs and people were just running off of this other data line. Stock traders are notorious for this all the time for like, I, you know, I created the fight club rules right uh on twitter just to try to help stock traders go number one fight club we don't speak about fight club number two we never ever ever use the new home sales monthly supply data for the existing homes right it's just not the case and you don't want to use the sales price and, and combine them both you keep them as separate as possible 
uh, and that's that's a huge difference for the builders. The builders actually had a monthly supply spike last year. The existing home sales didn't. Uh, the days on market is still very low historically for the existing home uh, seller, so they're not as motivated to cut prices or give seller credits as the builders because the builders are okay. I got all these backlogs coming in. I got to get them through. I got to get it going, get these homes sold and get them done. So, Okay. So we're almost out of time, but the most important question then, Logan, is if you're not going to be the dollar for Halloween, what are you going to be? Hmm. You're a big dress up guy. You like to dress up for Halloween. I'm a big dress up. I, you know what? I was thinking about this and I thought to myself, if I just keep my hair like this and wear a gray thing, I'm going to be like that cable uh, picture where this massive cable room and it had all these wires, and I was like, "Oh my God, that's my dad!" It did, you know. Look and like I you. just actually retweeted it, and I, I and I took that picture. I'm like, "Dad," <laughs> you know. And uh, it it's it, I don't know if people know what I'm talking about, but there's this massive cable room, and the wires were like my hair, and it was gray, and it looked like it had a white goatee, and I was like, "Whoa, Dad, where have you been?" So. I just do this and just pretend I'm the cable guy. Go as a parody guy. of yourself. <laughs> or the, or the I cable like it. Machine. Okay. Well, thank you so much. We will look for the housing market tracker, which will be out by the time that this podcast goes live. So thank you again, Logan, as always. Thank you, everyone. And by the way, we are working on getting the mortgage rate lockdown debate up soon, maybe next week. Uh, uh, and uh, hopefully you all get to see how Sarah Wheeler fared against uh, my uh, my charts and my data at that site. As you know, I want people to watch it and then weigh in. And, you know, there are some good points that you made. I thought I also made some good points. So uh, we'll see what our audience thinks about that. All right. Thanks, Logan. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.